You're listening to In It Together, a podcast curated by the Ride Out Lyme Health and Wellness team. I'm Brandy Dean, founder and president of Ride Out Lyme, and our mission is raising funds to help those impacted by Lyme and other tick-borne diseases pay for their treatments. This In It Together podcast is an offering not just for those with Lyme disease, but for anyone struggling in any way and looking for hope and inspiration. Join us for heartfelt conversations about what gets us through as we walk our journeys. No matter where you are or what your situation is, our team here at Ride Out Lime want you to know that we are right there with you behind you all the way. Hi everyone and thank you so much for being here today and joining Ride Out Lime for this virtual panel on creating equity in healthcare and how you can help. I'm Lindsay Kolker. I'm Patricia Kosalich. And both of us are Ride Out Lime advisory board members, proud Ride Out Lime advisory board members. And we're gonna be facilitating this conversation today. We're really humbled to be here and just wanna take a moment to thank our dynamic group of panelists. And we're so grateful to you, our attendees, for taking the time to join in this important conversation. We wanted to take a few minutes to share our intentions for today. This has been a year of reflection for us and we have an opportunity to choose inclusion because inclusion is not automatic. It is something we have to actively choose and practice. The purpose of this panel is to start a conversation. So this is where we are discussing and gathering and we will be figuring out how to move forward in our process of choosing inclusion within our organizations and in our communities. And I wanted to acknowledge as a Lyme warrior myself, the hardships and suffering that we all face from different disease and disability communities and as part of Ride Out Lime, our mission is to improve access. And so part of that mission and what's imperative in order to carry out that mission is that we acknowledge and look at groups that face additional barriers. And so that's why we're here today. We are looking at the additional barriers that face people of color and how we can work to remove them. And before we begin, we just want to encourage everyone, you can comment in the chat, you can add questions. If you have solutions, we're going to be talking about solutions, add them in the chat. And then on social, feel free to tag us on social. We are Ride Out Lime on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And now let's get on with this and introduce our group of panelists. First up is Carrie Sawyer. Carrie is Diversity by Design CEO and founder, and she's also the founder of the Inclusion First Project. Thank you, Carrie, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Next up is Angel Wilson, and Angel is the founder of Spark Guidance and an autism educator. Thank you, Angel, for joining us. Thank you. Risa Pereira. Risa is Negra Con Lime founder. Risa, thank you so much for joining us and being here today. Oh, thank you for having me. And finally, I want to introduce Victoria Gibbs. Victoria is a Lupus Foundation of America ambassador. She's also a yoga athlete. Check her out on social. She does these crazy poses. I don't know how she does it. A model and an influencer. Thank you so much for being here today, Victoria. Thank you. So we want to start this conversation, and this is directed at Angel, Risa, and Victoria. Angel, if you could start. If you all could talk a little bit about your own personal stories and how you were drawn to advocate for healthcare equity, I'd love to start there. Sure. First, thank you, um, Red Outline, for having us and putting together this panel on a topic that's so incredibly important, especially now, I think, more than ever. 
My field of choice is autism, and I first got interested in this field about 12 years ago when I stumbled into it because I started working as a service coordinator locally first here in Florida, and that's when I first got introduced to families who were diagnosed with it, but it was mostly, honestly, white families. Then I moved out to California for about eight years, and over there, it started shifting more to Latino families that I started working with both on like intervention level and then also supervising others that were working with them and also kind of like helping to do assessment. And it was when I started getting into the assessment side and more working directly with the families that I started to notice this trend of the Latino and Black families that I had were taking longer and longer to get diagnosed. The white families would get diagnosed definitely within age three, and then services would start and everything would just go feeding ahead. And meanwhile, the Black and brown children, it was just kind of getting kicked down the road. And I started seeing this pattern over and over again. I worked up in San Jose for eight years, saw the pattern went down to LA for almost a year, saw the pattern, came back here to Florida and really saw the pattern and realized, okay, there is a definite issue here. One with our communities not really being educated on what autism is and what it looks like, not being educated on what the services are, but then the healthcare side, not really meeting them and not really helping to bridge that gap. So it made me kind of shift gears a little bit from just education to add in healthcare advocacy as well. So now I not just work with the parents about behaviors and things with their children, but I also try to teach them how to talk to healthcare professionals and hopefully how to work with healthcare professionals to better identify those signs and work to get the services that these children need. Raisa, could you talk a little bit about your own personal stories and how you were drawn to advocate for healthcare equity? This is a new world for me because I went to school for multimedia production, like writing, screenwriting, directing, like that's all I ever wanted to do was make movies. And then in college, I got sick, but I didn't know what was going on with me. And that was about 11 years ago. And then last September of 2019, I was diagnosed with Lyme disease and I was kind of left in the dark by my doctor. So I was looking for help and I found a support group on Facebook The issue with the support group on Facebook was I didn't see anybody who looks like me. So I was kind of searching for someone I could connect with to maybe ask them for advice. So I started posting on Instagram about my experience and a podcast reached out to me and then some other groups reached out to me to share my story and people kept coming in and I'm like, oh, okay. So I'm finally finding some people of color, some black people that have Lyme disease. And then I started my website and the goal of my website was to share stories of brown and black people with any chronic illness to kind of get their stories out there. A few weeks ago, I was talking to Patricia and she helped me with like this idea, why don't you start a support group? Because the issue with the support group was people were reaching out to me and they were like, I'm scared to join the virtual support group because every time we join a support group or just have a conversation, we get attacked for talking about racism in medicine. So it doesn't really feel supportive because mm. we have to keep defending ourselves in the group. I was like, well... Then I guess I'll just start my own group. (laughs) Was it trolls when you say you were attacked? Well, no, it's other people with Lyme disease who are like saying we're lying or... Oh, got it. Yeah, or like, or we'll talk about gaslighting or something. And I'm like, isn't that ironic that we're talking about gaslighting and they're doing the same thing to us? Got it. So I started my own space because I saw there was a need for it. I'm so excited you started that group, Raisa. It's so neat. People are so excited about it. I get so many messages about it, so it's great. I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing, but I'm just going to go for it. <laughs> and how long have you been doing the support group? We only have three sessions so far, but people have logged in. That's great. Victoria, if you could share with us more about you. 
I used to work in finance and I was working all sorts of wild and crazy hours. At that time, I started to get a little bit sick. This was back in June of 2016. Actually, it started in February 2016. My health deteriorated completely. I, for the first time, had heard of lupus around the time of my diagnosis, which is kind of crazy. And I found that what's interesting about lupus is that primarily affects minorities, but at the same time, I find that minorities take longer time to reach a diagnosis just because they don't necessarily have the same resources and quality of care as our white counterparts. I feel very lucky, to be completely honest, because since I was working at a hedge fund, I had exceptionally good health care. So I was able to obtain a diagnosis probably within four or five months after my symptoms got really severe, which is highly unusual. But with that said, I was depressed by the diagnosis and didn't really understand it, had never heard of it. And so I wrote a piece called The Long Road to Diagnosis, which was published on the Lupus Foundation of America website. And some of the group leaders from the Northeast region reached out to me and they were like, you would be a great advocate to educate people and share your story. And so I wanted to do more. And I, this was a great opportunity for me to step into a role where I could share my experience, help educate others. And, you know, I participated in my first lupus walk, I guess it was three years ago. And when you look out, it's literally a sea of African-Americans and a couple of white faces in the midst of things. And so I just found that it was really important to work on educating others, educating friends, family, colleagues. I mean, I feel like it's still a disease that a lot of people just don't know anything about. I think around 65% of Americans have never even heard of lupus, which I think is absolutely wild. And so participating on things like this and getting out there and speaking at different events and whatnot, I found has been really helpful and just like a great way for me to give back to the community and bring about more awareness. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your stories, all of you. Carrie, I see you nodding your head a lot. I'm curious to hear what you have to say, even though the question wasn't directed at you. I'm just curious. No, I'm just loving um, all these brave women who are out there seeing a need and even working through their own confusion and like fear in the space and then still being able to interject that light and creating space for others as well. I think that's, it's phenomenal. So I applaud all of you. You're amazing. <laughs> I'm getting the chills already. <laughs> <laughs> so powerful. All these women are so powerful. And Carrie, actually, the next question is for you. You really have such a big picture perspective on equity and inclusion. And prior to starting Diversity by Design in the Inclusion First Project, you were actually working for two big tech companies, Qualcomm and Intel. And you were responsible for creating inclusion and diversity programs and curriculums. And I'm curious just to hear a little bit about what you have learned through this work. It's obviously your life's work and how everyone can play a role in this initiative. So it's interesting because I have a design background. I used to design technology before I got into diversity and inclusion. And so specifically human-centered design. So it's all about understanding how people are experiencing a system, figuring out what's working and what's not, and then using the people in that system to collaborate with them to make the system better. Typically, you know, that exists in a tech field, but what I've done is move it over to diversity and inclusion. And really it, that kind of thinking, like design thinking, human-centered thinking, systems thinking can be used in anything. And so it's really 
really great to look at the world through that lens because at the end of the day, it's about helping people like have better experiences in whatever space they're in. These three women have given us great examples of they are like uniquely situated within their own sphere of influence. And instead of sitting back and just letting everything happen to them, they were proactive in figuring out how they could positively influence that particular area they're in, in their own little corner of the world. And I feel like that's everyone's opportunity when it comes to inclusion, regardless of whether you're thinking about it at work, in healthcare, in finance, in sports, it really doesn't matter. We all have the opportunity, what I call a nucleus of inclusion, where we are thinking about how a particular space is supporting people and how we can support people more, especially the people who are not being supported. And I feel like that is, you know, the constant story when it comes to different minority groups in healthcare. So thinking not just about yourself, but thinking about how you can take your experience and use that for the betterment of the people around you as well. Because if you're struggling in this space, so is someone else. Or if you see someone else struggling, there's more people that are struggling. Um, so how can we wrap arms around everyone and lift each other up? And I think it's just so incredible. Well, we've heard so far and we just started. Yeah, and I think Patricia, you said it so well when in our intro, inclusion is a conscious choice and we have to practice inclusion. And that's something interesting that when we were talking about this, I found it to be so interesting that it is a practice. Thank you. I have learned from Carrie, <laughs> one of the best. <laughs> so, you know, part of that really is that a lot of times we think it happens automatically. Well, I'm not intentionally excluding anyone. Whereas it's not just, well, I'm not doing anything on purpose to be bad. No, we have to actually choose. Yeah. And it's constant. It's going on all the time. Victoria, you shared a little bit about your journey toward diagnosis and how the medical available through your work helped you receive a diagnosis sooner. If there's anything you want to add to that, please chime in. Raisa, I was wondering if you could tell us more about your journey toward diagnosis and how long it took. Technically, to get diagnosed took about 18 to 19 years if I start all the way back. <laughs> my symptoms started when I was 10, very slight joint pain, nothing that altered my life. And then when I was on my senior trip for high school, I started with GI issues, but there were a few people on that trip that got sick. So they ruled it out as us getting like food poisoning, except for me, I was the only one who didn't get better. It took about eight months for those symptoms to go away. And then when I was going into my second year of college, I started getting like severe migraines and vertigo and it was pretty much every day. So they were just throwing all this medication at me. Let's try this. Let's try this. Let's send you for this test. It was just so overwhelming. And I was just trying to enjoy the college experience, but it was literally impossible because I was either working in class or completely knocked out. That's literally all I did in my free time in school was sleep. And then I kept just getting more and more symptoms. The joint pain and muscle aches got worse. I started forgetting things like I would get I started getting lost in New York City where I grew up my entire life. I knew that the city like with my eyes closed. So I saw dozens of doctors and then at one point I kind of just gave up. They keep telling me everything's normal, so I guess this is my normal life is just going to be struggling and not feeling well. And then they kind of ruled it out as psychiatric. You're stressed, you're anxious. They threw antidepressants at me for the last 10 years and every time I went back to the doctor, I would say the symptoms are back full blown. And they'd be like, okay, we're just going to up your meds <laughs> uh, or we're going to change your meds or we're going to pair something together. And then last year I felt so sick. I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. And 
I was getting married and I was like, I just need something to be a normal human being during my wedding. Just give me all the pills and I'll figure it out when I come back. So I got back home and I went to a new doctor and I said, these are my symptoms. It's been 10 years. If I don't get it fixed now, I don't know what's going to happen to me. And she said, has anyone tested you for Lyme disease? And I was like, what the hell is Lyme disease? And I was like, the bug thing. I know like put that little thing on my cat or your dog to like not get Lyme disease. That's the only time I heard of Lyme disease. The frontline commercials. And then she tested me for that. A few days later, I got the message, you have Lyme disease, like no big thing. She said, your labs are normal, but you have Lyme disease. So I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> so she gives me like two weeks of antibiotics. I get like a hundred times worse. <laughs> like she's like, I don't know what to tell you. And I'm like, uh, what do you mean? She's like, go see a neurologist. I'm like, I've seen like five neurologists. I can't. I've seen a million ENTs. I've seen literally every specialty of doctor. In like February, that's when I started diving deep into research and I found out a friend of mine, her friend had Lyme and she treated with this naturopath in Georgia. So I started with them and like some of my symptoms got better, but the neurological issues I have sometimes didn't. So now I'm treating with a Lyme literate doctor. So <laughs> the whole story in a quick form. Wow. You've been through so much, Risa. So we appreciate you sharing that. And it, it's amazing how long it took. Can you share anything about have doctors commented on your race at all in that process of seeking medical care? And if so, what did they say? I've seen a lot of doctors. No one's ever really said anything about me being Black. But last year, I saw a neurologist because my migraines are debilitating where like, I can't do anything. And I went to him, I was just kind of like, I'm literally gonna go to every neurologist in New York until I like figure it out. And I walk in, he asked me some questions and then he said, where's your family from? And I'm like, the hell does that matter? But I answered it because I didn't know what, I was like, maybe there's a reason for this question. I said, well, my mom's from Puerto Rico, born and raised there. She came here to the States for school and my dad's from New York. And he was like, huh, your family's from Puerto Rico? I mean, you probably have HIV. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? And he's like, yeah, you probably just have like HIV is most likely. And I was like, okay, I'm out of here. Like, I literally just walked out. I like ripped the paper up and I just like, no. And like, I was like fuming. I'm like, this cannot be life. And that was the first time that's ever been thrown in my face. I'm sure there have been plenty of racist doctors that I've seen, but it hasn't ever been that in my face ever. I feel like the experiences that, and thank you so much for sharing that, Risa. Um, that's like, you know, the blatant, obvious experience, right? But so many of them aren't obvious at all. And you don't even know that you've been discounted, that they're not taking it seriously, that you think they think you're just trying to get more pain medication, all of these different things. Uh, my brother is a COO at a hospital and my parents have different health issues. And so it's just shocking how often they go to the doctor and then the doctor tells them something. My brother's like, what? What about this, 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 and this? Put him on the phone. And luckily we have my brother who runs a hospital to be able to say and talk doctor speak and let him know, not with these two black people, sorry, <laughs> but not everyone has that. And we don't have the, I mean, we're not doctors. So how do you protect yourself when you're in there so that you're not being blown off for what, 18 years? That's crazy. Thank you, Carrie, for adding that. Is there anything that you wanted to add, Angel, about what you've seen with other families in terms of their autism diagnosis journeys? There's so many stories, but there's a couple in particular that really jump out to me that really, I think, again, it's not like Carrie said, it's not this obvious blatant, but there is certain trends and patterns that, like I said, I just started noticing. And one of the biggest ones was, I noticed that a lot of um, Black boys, usually under the age of 10, nearly all of them that I've had as clients, they always got diagnosed with conduct disorder or oppositional defiant disorder first before autism even came on the table. 
So they were unfortunately going into their classrooms with this diagnosis hanging over them. And if anyone knows the whole pipeline to prison idea, this is the beginning of it, essentially. The child is first identified as a troublemaker because they've been misdiagnosed or haven't been diagnosed at all. And then they're automatically branded as such. So unfortunately, it's not just on the medical side, it's also on the educational side where teachers, doctors, all of them will look at them like, oh, this child's a problem child. So all of the actions, behaviors, experiences are no longer viewed through the lens of this could be a actual condition or disorder. It's now viewed as, oh, this is a problem child and they have to be dealt with accordingly. So they already have this blanket interpretation over them before they've even really started to live. And that also factors into them getting diagnosed much later and therefore having a tougher time learning how to live and integrate with their autism. Thank you so much, Angel. Is there anything anyone else wanted to add before we move on? I know I kind of glossed over my (laughs) diagnosis with everything just because it was four or five months of just rapid health deterioration. But in general, just based on my lupus community and group outings and things of that nature that I've gone to, a lot of people have highlighted that it has taken, you know, minimum 10 years to receive a diagnosis. And I mean, there were times even in college where, you know, things were happening to me, like I had walking pneumonia for what seemed like forever. And I was always told I was anemic, but I realized that that's part of the lupus. So there are probably symptoms years before, but it only really came to a head once a lot of environmental factors took over. I had a lot of traumatic life experiences and I think my body just gave up on me at a certain point in time. And then that's when all the symptoms started flooding in. But um, in general, I know it does take people a significant amount of time. And I think a lot of people don't have necessarily the resources to see the right doctors and find doctors who really care. You know, you walk in there and you're told you have the flu or you're told you have the mumps. These are things that I was told when I went to urgent care in the city many times. And my parents finally told me that I needed to come home. Like, we don't understand what's going on with you. You need to come see your family doctors. So by some miracle, I made it back home finally. And once I got to my doctors who I've known my entire life, they took the time to really figure things out for me. But when I was going to new doctors that I had never met before, just popping into urgent cares and things like that, they would send me home, told me I had the flu, the mumps. Finally, one doctor was like, your blood work looks a little weird. I think you probably need to go see your general practitioner. And so finally, I took the advice. but. I realize if you don't have a relationship with the physician, that sometimes it can just be you're in and you're out and you get nothing. Thank you so much, Victoria. Lindsay, go ahead. I'm also curious to hear from the three of you what your experience has been like in these communities, the lupus, autism, and Lyme communities. Does it feel diverse and do you feel supported? I mean, some of these anecdotes you're sharing sounds like it's not very diverse, but... I'd like to hear from you whether you feel like it is and if you feel a sense of support from these communities or if you'd like to see more support. Why don't we start with Angel? As far as the local community, so like the local Black community, they've actually been super supportive because, you know, I've started the process of educating and that was the big part was just educating. 
it was then that parents started to come like, oh, wait a minute, that sounds a lot like my child or, oh, that sounds like my nephew. Oh, that sounds like that could be, you know, my little cousin. And so they've started coming to terms of the, oh, this may not just be conduct disorder like the pediatrician or the psychologist said, this may be something else. One of the big issues though I'm seeing is still with the pediatricians. And honestly, there aren't a lot of black pediatricians down here. There are certain associations or groups that are kind of like the pediatric groups down here. And there's about, I think I'd say about four of them. And there's not a whole lot of diversity in there. There's a handful of them that I think definitely are open and are willing to listen, but some of them, it really is just kicking it down the road. And that's where I'm seeing a lot of the pushback, not from the black community, but from, again, the more, dare I say, archaic side of the healthcare industry. I actually have a set of twins right now as clients who the mom has had suspicions of autism with both of the twins. I, within like two sessions with each of them was like, yeah, I'm seeing the obvious textbook signs. The organization that referred them to me who assessed them was saying the same thing. The pediatrician is saying, no, let's wait until they're two and a half and see how they're doing then. And literally all of us are looking at this and saying, this is what we see. And unfortunately, the pediatrician is the one who is the key to getting the actual diagnosis because I cannot formally diagnose. And so we're stuck until they diagnose and then we can move move forward and get you know everything going and that's the frustration that I'm starting to see more and more and more as the parents and the families are learning they're hitting the medical wall so to speak so it's not necessarily from the from my actual community they seem to be pretty you know ready to go and, and ready to advocate it's just that wall we keep hitting because there's not a lot of diversity in healthcare, at least for my community down here and they're just they don't appear to be knowledgeable on what autism one what it looks like in general and definitely not what it looks like in black and latino children you say in your community down here which you're based in florida in your expert opinion, is it the same across the country? Are there different parts of the country that have more support than others? Definitely. I would say there is, for example, it's night and day as far as like between California and Florida. The fact that I had to come back over to Florida and I'm like, oh, they don't have the, oh gosh, I can't remember what it's called now, but they have actual regional centers in California. And that doesn't exist in Florida where taxpayer money actually pays for these different centers where kids and families can go in, they do the full diagnostics and then straight in there, they diagnose them and then get them to the services that they need. And it's just a well-oiled machine. And then I got back over to Florida and at first I thought it was a resource desert and I'm finding out there are resources around. They're just not, again, that bridge metaphor, they're just not bridging over to the black community at uh, all. Thank you for that. Angel, I have one more question about that. You mentioned that there are differences between how autism spectrum disorder might show up in white children versus black and brown children, or you said, I think you said Latinx and black. Could you expand a little on that and how it might show up differently? I think a better way to put it would be that the way that I think the different signs are interpreted and the symptoms are interpreted, I think, are different. Even with boys and girls, there's a huge difference. Girls, for example, are usually diagnosed much, much later because they're very good at what we call masking. The women in general are taught to assimilate and express appropriately and everything like that. So girls and women are much better at hiding the symptoms. So overall, Black women in particular are one of the slowest to be diagnosed because of the fact that they've just gotten so good at hiding it. 
boys and particularly just from what I've seen in the, all the families I've worked with and then seeing how the doctors interact with them and everything, it seems that with boys in particular, it's almost as if they expect black boys to be rowdier, if that, if that makes any sense. And they expect them, it comes back to the whole conduct disorder and oppositional defined disorder idea, where they expect them to be more, oh, they're going to, that's just the, you know, the boys will be boys thing. And, <laughs> and, and, and unfortunately, and so these signs that normally you know, if it was, say, a white child or even an Asian child, because they get diagnosed pretty quickly, too, from my experience in California. It's kind of looked at as, oh, wait a minute, why are they acting like this? As opposed to with black boys in particular, where they'll be like, oh, well, that's how they are. I I've, I've actually had parents tell me that that's what the doctors told. Like, oh, that's just how they are. Victoria, I'd love to hear from you. In general, I feel like the lupus population is not really that diverse. And I think because it's not that diverse is one reason in particular why there's not a ton of information about lupus, primarily a minority's disease. So I think because of that, the amount of education among the population, among the physicians is quite minimal at this point, to be completely honest. I know, you know, everyone's doing their part to try and raise funds and raise awareness and increase the research. But I think if it was primarily a Caucasian illness, that I think that there would be a lot more progressive information about lupus at this time. In general, though, the community, um, we definitely all rallied together, which I think is really amazing. Because once I was diagnosed, I didn't know anything about it. My family didn't know anything about it. And then being able to actually communicate with other lupus warriors and have these meetings and have these socials and do the research to become an ambassador really made all the difference because there are times where it's like I need someone to talk to my family might not understand it I know that I have someone that I can always reach out to who I can commiserate with and we can you know share stories and it feels good so in that respect the community is awesome but in general, just from a research standpoint and all knowledge and whatnot, we're definitely lacking in that. And Raisa? <laughs> Lyme is a tough one, right? Because it's not even considered a chronic illness still. So it's tough for the community. It's definitely not diverse at all. <laughs> I've even heard people call it like a rich white man's disease because it's so expensive to treat. If you don't have money, it's pretty much impossible to get better or even try to get better. That's pretty much just why I started the group to begin with. The support group I started is basically for any non-white person, just because it was too much to just be like, oh, just for like black people or just for Latino or just for, you know, so I, it's kind of just everyone. So the group, we've had people who, black women or Latina, Asian, it's kind of just anyone in the group. But like I said, when I joined that first support group on Facebook, I'd say there's about 19,000 people in the group. And I've been in it for about a year now. And I've probably seen like five black people. <laughs> That's why I started this group because I'm like, it's not there. So I don't mind being the first person to start it. Yeah. Well, one of the things I just want to add to what you said about Lyme disease being a rich white man's disease. I'm knocking on wood right now, but I'm involved in this organization, but I don't have Lyme. I'm knocking really hard on wood. And what I love about Ride Out Lyme is that that is part of our mission, is to raise necessary funds for people 
who, because this is such a debilitating disease and that the healthcare community, the medical community doesn't acknowledge Lyme disease, that we're raising funds to provide financial grants to people impacted. It's a big priority for this organization to start to seek out African-American, Latinx, Asian, different people of color um, that we can be providing these financial grants to. It's something that I just wanted to mention. I chime into that too, as a person recovering from Lyme disease, because you nailed it, Raisa. And because of the nature of Lyme with it being so political, we have this whole other mess of politics and people not believing that it's real and all of these other issues we deal with. And because of that, it often requires seeking out of network care, even to receive a diagnosis. So it's incredibly expensive and takes a lot of time and resources to even receive a diagnosis, which is why it's so common that Lyme diagnoses take so long. I mean, I know few people who took less than several years and, you know, 18 years is one of the higher ones I've heard. I know some people, another black woman who took 30 years. I mean, it's nuts. That's why we're here. You know, what I'm personally really hoping to see come out of this is more awareness too, because what I love about what Angel does is how you're educating and helping people ultimately receive diagnoses. And I think we need so much more of that in the Lyme community because we know that it's an infectious disease that can affect anyone. And so seeing it be such a white community is concerning because when we know that other people have it, they're just not here. Great it's point. Very, really, to me. We know it's possible to engage in this kind of work with the best of intentions, and sometimes we create unintended consequences, and sometimes we're incredibly effective. And so with that in mind, what have you all seen in your respective communities that has worked well, and what would you like to see more of? Um, I'll start. First, like when I moved back to Florida, I had to take almost an entire year just to kind of get into the community. And Patricia, I think maybe you talked about this about a month or so ago, but I quickly learned that even as a Black person, because I've been gone from, and even though this is my hometown, because I've been gone for so long, I had to reintroduce myself to my entire community regardless of what race, color, background, if you're coming into a community that you've never really interacted with or haven't interacted with that much, you're going to have to build trust. That is the number one thing you're going to have to do. And so for the first, I'd say 10 months of, okay, let me get this whole thing started off the ground. I didn't do anything except went to, you know, before COVID, went to different workshops in the community, activities in town hall kind of meetings, roundtables meetings and things like that, just to kind of listen and hear, okay, first of all, what what are the major concerns in here and is there a way that I can help or is it, are they even aware that this is a problem that's circulating in their community? And as I started meeting different people in the community, that's when I started getting known and that's when, oh, autism, yeah, and that's when the buzz started growing. So I think the biggest key, particularly to helping and getting into and building the trust of black and brown communities is to get in there. You can't just go in and do one little like thing and then just zip back out and think, okay, kind of like what, what Carrie said, you go and have like a three hour thing and then just disappear and then that's it. You, you cannot do that. The community down here in particular had gotten very leery of folks coming in, taking all this information, gathering information, like, oh yeah, we're going to do this, that, and that, and then they just disappear. And so when I was coming in, I was dealing with a community that was already kind of like, uh, you know, what do you want to do? 
Why are you here? And so I decided, one, let me get to know folks in the community, and then let me, through those folks in the community, offer, you know, workshops. And so I made an agreement with a local nonprofit called Bridges to actually start workshops for um, families. And it was through that that these little seeds started getting planted, and the parents were like, oh, this is really great information. They started giving me ideas of, you should go talk about this, and oh, we need to know more about sensory processing and stuff and things like that. And so it started snowballing, and for example, now, like next month, I'll be training um, about 60 to 80 employees that are part of Early Head Start so that they can be able to identify developmental delays in autism in the kids that they service in the Early Head Start daycares in our county. And that's how it grew. It started from like, okay, I'm going to go to these couple of town halls to now I'm going to help 80 folks who work with kids every day be able to identify and help these families get connected to services because they now know how to identify those things as well. But I think it takes time. And it, there has to be an amount of patience and understanding that there's a reason why that trust is not quite there right now. The history of the African-American community in particular and the medical community, the American medical community is a really kind of a harsh one. So that trust has to be built back up and it's baby steps, basically. Thank you, Angel. That was such a strong start to talking about how we can engage and change in these areas. And the larger, harsher history is a much bigger topic. So we plan to share resources. If there's anything that anyone wants to contribute, we plan to send some of those up as follow-up. Carrie, I have a question for you. I was curious if you could talk a little bit about how all of us in the medical health and wellness community can be better allies to people of color. That is a really big question, but I think that it starts with acknowledging that there are differences, that there are differences in experiences, that there are differences in trust and how communities handle and speak about and navigate through different things and not trying to put like a one size fits all on every person that comes through. And then believing people. You're likely not there with your child or your mother or yourself because you're trying to get over on something or get some medicine. You're there because you're in pain and you're suffering, you're trying to get well. Um, and so believing the stories that people bring and then just doing the due diligence. And it's really just going back to the fact that our healthcare system is not a system that is designed to help people get well. It's designed to make money. And so it's not in their best interest to help people get well. But at the same time, people are coming for that. And I saw a comment about naturopathic doctors in there. And that totally is great sometimes, but sometimes you need Western medicine based on what you have. You need their tools, you need their resources. And so this really goes to a super high level of how do we like overhaul healthcare so that it is a system that is based on helping people get well. And I don't know how we do that, but that is the root cause of a lot of these problems. Um, and the accountability that then comes, if we were to, in medical, in the medical field, in hospitals, if there's like accountability for like the disparities, people would start to do things differently. If we're noticing that our black patients aren't getting well, or they're getting diagnosed lower, and that wasn't okay with the system, then that would go away. Right? So there's all these systemic things that need to be handled from the top. As people who are in their own sphere, just keeping these things in mind and knowing that, hey, maybe I heard this about Black boys, but maybe that's actually not true. And so how can I educate myself on the different prejudices and biases that exist within the community that I'm in? If I'm a pediatric doctor, if I'm working with older people, if I'm working on feet, like what are the things that I need to know about the different communities and how they're treated so that when someone comes in, I can check my biases right 
right away and start to dig into not just the biases that I have that are untrue, but also understanding what are the things that they have that maybe my white patients don't have. And it's just this more comprehensive look. And I know that doctors and medical professionals are doing a lot. They have no time being held to the gun, but how do you take care of all the different people that are coming through in an equitable way? And that's not a question that people are asking. And so how do we change that narrative? For me, I think about what you're saying and it feels so overwhelming. There's so much work to do and you think about the end result and where you want to be or the goal, but to get there, there's so much legwork. Do you have any advice for people that get overwhelmed by wanting to help? Everybody is so quick to expect things to change quickly in the world. Technology and consumer choice has made that the consumer so impatient, right? And I know we're talking about patients, humans, but I'm curious if you have any advice about that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a simple answer. It's really start where you are. It's the same when we're thinking about racism, systemic racism. How can I fix racism in the world, in my country, in my city? I, I get overwhelmed by that. But if I start where I am, based on my own sphere of influence, then I can start to make little changes around me that ripple out. So wherever you are, take a look around because there are all kinds of things that you can do to create a better health experience for the people that you're serving. Pick one. I don't really feel like there's a wrong place to start and continue to grow that. And just know that it's baby steps. Someone said that already. It's little by little. You are changing your environment. You're changing the care that you're giving. You're changing how you're interacting. And you just start with yourself. Focus there because the thing is, you're changing the experience for the people that you're serving, but then also your peers are watching you. Everyone's always watching us, right? And they're, you're, you can be a model for good things or a model for bad things. And so not only do you have the opportunity to model to the people that are around you in your peer circle, you're also helping the people who are not getting the same quality of care. And so you're already doing two great things right there. And if you focus in that area, you're going to start to make a difference beyond what you can even see, as we've seen from these amazing women who have started in their circle and then move out. That's really, really helpful. Cool. Patricia, did you want to go through some of the questions or did we skip anything? We do have a couple of questions submitted from our attendees in the Q&A. And I wanted to add to what Carrie said because Carrie, what you shared was so perfect. And we love how you talked about working in your sphere of influence. We all can start exactly where we are. And that's actually what I love about your series that you do with the Inclusion First Project, these allyship conversations where it's every week for free and you get to ask questions about what you're wondering. And I just love that you've created that space. And since we here are coming mostly from the health and invisible disease or disability communities, I'm curious, this is a question for everyone. It's a big question, so I feel like it's hard to answer. I'm curious though, really, because I think everyone here is probably wondering, what can we do? You know, this is our sphere of influence. What can our attendees be doing? What can our organizations be doing? You know, we have a number of nonprofits watching. So what changes do we want to see in this sphere of influence? I was just going to add something. I don't know if it's really answering this question, but going off of what Carrie said about biases that medical professionals have, I had an, a registered nurse send me an article a few months ago, and it was a survey that was taken in 2016, and they asked medical professionals if they thought that Black people felt less pain than white people, and if they actually believed that our skin is thicker, and 60% of them said yes. So I feel like we're never gonna get past, like nothing's gonna change if they're still being taught this in actual medical school. Cause she sent me books that she has that still state that. 
So if they're actually reading these things, so they're coming into hospitals and offices thinking, oh, she's fine, like she, she can take it. So I don't even know how we would go about changing that, but I just wanted to add that because it was something that really caught my attention. Yeah, that's a great example of what systemic racism in healthcare looks like. It's literally coming from the books, coming through the med students into their practice. And our skin is not thicker and we cannot tolerate pain more. Um, I just right. that up. <laughs> I think the two things it's really going to come down to is listening and educating. The healthcare side is really going to have to and this is something we've all kind of echoed, really start listening and, and, and I mean, actively listening. I kind of just listen like, oh yeah, you know, whatever, but actively listening to the um, minority communities when they say, hey, I think there's something wrong here. Can you look into it? You know, when it comes to like Kara was kind of saying, like when it comes to basic health care, it should be there to make us well. There shouldn't be these blocks that we keep hitting toward getting better, toward feeling better. You know, if anything, ideally the healthcare system should be set up so that it not only makes us feel better, but also helps us stay feeling better. And so um, listening when we come and have these stories and say, hey, I think something's wrong and validating that and listening, and then also educating on all sides. Clearly the healthcare side definitely needs <laughs> educating an overhaul and it has to be done in a way that of course because of the fact that it's so ingrained it's not going to be completely changing well-established institutions in a way of thought none of that's going to happen overnight but I think it still comes back down to each person doing what they can in their space and then, you know, one drop becomes two drops, becomes three drops, becomes four, becomes 40, becomes 100, becomes 200, eventually turns into a tidal wave. And that is when real change across the board can occur. But it always starts back down to those few drops here and there. And then other people come in, like Kara was saying, and start adding their drops and then it just grows and grows. But you have to have those few that are willing to start the drops, so to speak. Uh, one thing that I think that is very important is for people to speak their truth. It's one thing to educate everyone or yourself or family and friends, but one thing that I find that has been extremely helpful, I use my social media platform to share my story very openly, very honest. It's very genuine. And I get a lot of feedback from people who tell me I've never heard of lupus. You telling me a little bit about the autoimmune disease is extremely helpful. And just some of the things that I go through. I cut my hair, but it was because my hair was falling out, not because I wanted it cut. But I shared that journey with my followers and, you know, it resonated with them. And it's taught them a bit of empathy and has brought some awareness and education to them, probably in a way that they never expected to even and learn or hear anything about lupus, but I feel like at least just taking that opportunity to just be genuine and honest, like I think the silence is a big thing. I know maybe because we just assume people don't know or won't be able to understand, but I think if we're quiet, we're doing ourselves a disservice. And so for me, it helps to share openly and honestly, and you don't know who you might be helping in that same vein. And so I think that that also is extremely important as well as the education. I know we're short on time, but we have a couple questions. I feel like you guys answered this one question. It's from Carrie Lang. What can I do as a support group leader to create a more welcoming environment to people of color? Have we kind of touched on that? Is there more you want to add? I would say just being welcoming and don't assume anything about them just because they're a person of color, but instead go and get to know them, listen to their story, hear the similarities, hear the differences and accept them for who they are and whatever they're telling you. Because at the end of the day, we're all people. And yes, we have our distinct and beautiful difference. 
you don't need to go and do anything special because they're a person of color. What you need to do is treat them kindly and with respect and with empathy mm -hmm. and be welcoming and then see what you can learn and then don't apply that to the next person of color that you meet because we all are <laughs> unique little unicorns out there, right? Despite the different trends that might happen as a macro, we are one. I am one. And so I want to be treated as that one with kindness and respect, if that makes sense. It does. What Raisa has shared um, that I feel is really important to highlight is how sometimes she'll get put in a spot or people will get put in a spot where they're asked to educate. Um, when you're there, when you're not feeling well, you're there for support for you. You didn't show up to educate or advocate. And so my thinking having facilitated groups is if you see that happening, something that you can do I think as a facilitator is sort of, if you see someone putting another person in that spot, you can mm. step in as an ally and stop that process. It's yeah. not their responsibility to educate you. And like, you can have a conversation offline, but you want to make sure that someone doesn't have to face that alone. Because with anything, when someone puts you on the spot to explain yourself, it's never really a good place to be. It can be very stressful. So right. we can offer support in that way too. I love that so much, Patricia, because as a facilitator, you're there creating a safe space for everyone. And so anyone who's violating that safe space, calling them in or out, depending upon what needs to be done so that that safe space can stay safe for everyone in there. And that's regardless of what you're facilitating on until you're holding that space. I think that's super, uh, such a great point. Also, I wanted to add with doing the virtual meetups, and we also started a private Facebook page plus an Instagram page that's called BIPOC Chronic Illness, so Black, Indigenous, People of Color with Chronic Illnesses. The group on Facebook is private, so people just have privacy that they can share whatever they want and not have people see it that are outside of the group. And we've had an issue with people who aren't of color trying to come into the group. And one of the questions literally is, are you black, indigenous, or a person of color? And they'll say yes. And then they come into the group and they're not. So I don't even know how to explain the feeling, but I'm like, guys, like you have plenty. So we need some privacy sometimes. It's different for us because we're gonna talk about different things that we really don't want other people hearing or seeing. This is our space. We have for Lyme, there are so many other spaces that include everyone. And we're just trying to create this one space for us because it's needed. Yeah. So very weird. We've only it's only been a few days, and we've had so many people try to, that we've had to message and kind of be like, "Hey, I don't know what's going on here, but this group was only for this." And that's another thing that happens, right? I had mentioned this on a podcast I was on where I said, "At the doctor, I always tried not to be rude, even when it was ten years down the line, and I'm still sick. I didn't want to come across as an angry black woman." Mm. I keep, I always have that in the back of my head and like sometimes I just want to be pissed off too, you know, like, like what the hell are you doing? This is our space. But then that's always in the back of my head where it's going to be like, oh, I don't want anyone to bash me on social media because they're like, oh, that black girl was rude, you know? Mm -hmm. I'm so interested in why those people are wanting to come into the group because the safety of the space is super important. And then I wonder a valid reason that I could think of one was maybe they have a black child, but still being able to articulate that, like I have a black child, this is why I want to be here. Is this space appropriate for me? Because then that could also do other spinoff groups, right? Where you could have space for that versus trying to like Bogart into this space that has a very clear and valid definition. It's weird. It's, right. it's because for me, like my dad is white and there are times where I'm like, oh bro, this ain't your place. You don't get it. I'm 30 and you still don't get it. So move over because you don't get it. And it's okay that you don't get it. I really appreciate you sharing that. We all have blind spots, right? And I think the purpose, as Patricia mentioned earlier, is to inform and educate ourselves. And I applaud you sharing that because 
saying things like that too can be so scary. Fear of isolating people. And I know you have felt isolated. I commend you for sharing that. Do you guys have time for just two questions or do you have to run? You're good? Okay. One is from an anonymous attendee. How can we help change the narrative? Carrie. <laughs> <laughs> I think one thing that people can do is when they hear something, coming out of someone else's mouth that sounds off, calling that out or calling that in. And when I say call out, call in, like when you call out, it's a little more, not aggressive, but like, hey, you did something wrong versus calling in like, hey, let me understand. But either way, so interrupting that false narrative, I think is a great thing. And then also, again, checking your own biases. What are the things that you're saying? And if someone calls you out or in on something that you said, don't get defensive, take that as feedback and go check your facts, check your information and learn from what you heard. Carrie. It reminds me of in your videos that you do, one of the definitions you shared, one of the definitions, you know, in terms of how we frame the narrative, it's like because of the history, um, this kind of relates back to the harsh medical history. It's like, how do we change that narrative of it's so dark and I hate to bring it up, just the how people used to use this fake science to say, oh, look, this is how we're different. And we're going, no, no, like we're equal. Yeah, I mean, it is just that false narrative. That is actually how white people were able to rationalize, like treating black people like animals, because you cannot treat someone who's equal to you in a bad way without internalizing that as bad. And so what they did was create this whole narrative that made us less than, so that they'd be like, well, we're doing this because they're less, they're like animals anyway. So we don't have to feel guilty about that. And so this is still very much ingrained. It's not in those words, it's very subtle, it's very insidious, but it's very much ingrained in how the different races see each other still. And so again, just like being aware, just starting to educate yourself on what those prejudices and what those biases are in your space so that you can check them in yourself and call them out. It's so important. And then the final question from an audience member is how can we educate our medical community about these disparities? These are really hard questions. <laughs> They're very aware of the disparities. And I'm talking at the top levels. Maybe you're a nurse or um, a, you know, a practitioner and you don't know, but you've definitely heard. So they know, but it's not a priority for them. And so what we really need to understand is how do we change the system so that that is no longer okay. Um, and that's like getting into like policy, that's getting into right. government. They're aware, they have lawyers that tell them not to share certain information because they could be sued for it. So people know, and that's like both the, I mean, it's cynical and honest perspective. Mm -hmm. So. How do we change that? I kind of hate to steer it in this general direction, but as far as communities coming together and groups coming together and really enacting change, it comes down to coming together and then affecting it on, like, like Kara was saying, a policy level, a, dare I say, a political level. It takes actually, and, and that can be done, it doesn't have to be done all the way at like starting at the national level. That can start as simple as, let's look at who's on our, for example, for autism, who's on our school board. How are taxpayer funds being used? Is there money that's going into these certain programs to educate folks on autism, on Lyme disease, on lupus? Are, are, is money being put in these areas? If not, how can we steer money into those areas? I mean, it really comes down to these really tough questions and subjects that people don't want to talk about. They don't want to talk about money. They don't want to talk about politics. They certainly don't want to talk about racism. But those are the things. We're going to have to break that down and talk about those things if we want some kind of change, because at least in our country, 
that's how change is made. It's made on those super macro levels involving money and involving influence. Mm-hmm. So I think the big question will be like, how do we change the money flow and how do we shift who the influences are? I think is the bigger question. And again, that's one that I think is far bigger than our panel. Do you guys have anything else that you want to add or share with us? This has been super eye-opening and informative. I kind of ended a podcast I did with this. They asked me like if I had any advice for anyone trying to find a diagnosis, whether it be for Lyme or anything. It sounds so simple, but if something feels wrong with you, your body, something's wrong. I don't care what your labs say. Like you can have the cleanest labs in the world. I don't care if you went to like the top doctor in the country and they're telling you nothing, but you literally have no quality of life. There is something wrong. I went to over 50 doctors in these last two decades. I don't even know how many doctors I've been to, but there's something wrong. And also don't settle for fibromyalgia because mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many people have been diagnosed with pain. Mm-hmm. Nobody's in pain for no reason. Pain means that there's something in your body that is wrong. People are not supposed to live in pain. Yeah. That's just not a thing. Almost everybody across the board with Lyme disease has been told it's just fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue. Like no one's just tired all the time, every single day. So I know it's easy to say like keep searching for an answer when that might not be possible for a lot of people in terms of insurance or money. But now there are so many resources online that can like help you get there. So don't settle for the bare minimum of them writing you off. Really good point. One aspect of my business spark that I stumbled upon the idea, but now that I think about it, it could probably apply to all of our different areas. And in my business, I call it the four A's of autism, but it can be the four A's of almost anything. And that's awareness, acceptance, affirmation, and advocacy. Those four things have to be present in any kind of change attempt, meaning awareness, people actually know about it. Acceptance, there is an understanding about it that's not lined with bias or stereotypes. Affirmation, which is kind of building those who have the condition and their caregivers up and giving them strength and encouragement. And then finally, advocacy, where we can now take all that strength and energy and now push it out and really make real change with it. My final piece of advice is one thing that I always tell my students is that they need to stay interested in the process and stay interested in the work. It's definitely never easy. I mean, it's not meant to be easy, but as long as we can stay interested, we'll eventually get there. So I feel like if everyone can adopt that type of mindset, we'll start to make some progress. Don't give up. Don't settle. And I love what Risa said about trusting your body because we're taught not to trust our body. We're taught to give up so much power when we show up in that doctor's office, right? Like they're the expert and we are not. And that's another false belief. That's a false narrative. It's not true. We are the expert and trusting, you know, those little people or those old people that you're caring for, trusting them and trusting their bodies, supporting that. And yeah, they never give up. That's definitely um, easier said than done, especially, I mean, people who seek diagnosis over decades, that is incredible. Um, That's incredible work, incredible stamina, incredible strength. So just being a support to those people. And again, helping where we see the opportunity to help and step in to uplift as well. Thank you. Wow. You all are so incredible. And I'm so grateful to have this space for us to all be together and to hear your advice and your experiences and anecdotes and stories because you have so much to offer. And I'm confident that what you've shared today will impact other people and make a difference. So thank you for doing this and for your openness, because it's not always easy to share these difficult experiences can be painful. So I'm in awe and feel really privileged and blessed that you've chosen to take the time and be willing to share it with all of us. 
Yeah, and I would just add that when we are vulnerable with each other, I think we get more out of each other in a community than if we're not. And I think right now this world is so at odds with each other and conflicted. And I appreciate you coming to this panel to reveal parts about yourselves that are raw and honest. So thank you for that. I get a lot out of that from you and I get a lot out of being vulnerable with others that I have a sense of trust with as well. So thank you. Um, and thank you to all of our participants. There's so many great chats in the chat room and this is just the beginning of our ongoing commitment to inclusion and diversity at Ride Out Lime. And there'll be more of this that we're going to be creating within the organizations. Don't be surprised if we tap into you again and wanna work with you guys again. And just thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. This is really thank an invitation. Thank you. This has been awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Many thanks once again to our guests and to you, our listeners, for joining us. It means so much to us to share this time with you, and we hope it gave you a boost of strength and encouragement to keep going, no matter where you are, knowing that you certainly are not alone. To learn more about Ride Out Lime and the In It Together podcast, please visit www.rideoutlime.org. We love hearing from you. Please also follow us and leave a review so we can keep providing episodes that best support you. Until next time, hold on to the very real hope that there is a way and we will keep finding it together.